the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Molly Melching, the founder of Toastan, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. We all try to change our own behavior. It's hard. Or we may attempt to modify that of our child. That's even harder. And what about trying to sway a friend or an acquaintance with different political beliefs to look at things the way you do? Well, we all know that's impossible. So what then about changing long-standing social norms steeped in history and tradition of an entire community? As daunting as that may sound, it's what my next guest and the organization that she founded has done around issues such as human rights, female genital cutting, and child marriage. She is Molly Melching, the founder of Toast, and good evening, Molly, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening, Denver. So nice to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you here. Give us a snapshot of Toastin's mission. Toastin's mission is to support communities to realize their own vision for well-being. Toastin is a word that a professor whom I worked with when I first came to Senegal thought was so important. He told me that this word toastan, which is a Wolof word, means the actual the, – the breakthrough when a chick mm-hmm. breaks through the egg and is able to walk on its own. And he said that egg is nurtured with the nutrients and the blood of the, the mother who sits on the egg. And this is, he said, what needs to happen in Africa. People need to be nurtured with their own culture, their own language, and when they break through and get out and share with others um, their, and with the confidence of their own language and their culture, then he said we will go for true development in Africa. His name was Sheranta Jop, mm-hmm. whom all Senegalese know, admire as being one of the great African intellectuals, great African thinkers, and I had the great honor of being able to work with him for 10 years. Yeah, and he gave you a great word to describe (laughs) your organization. It is absolutely pitch perfect. Well, you were born in Texas, and you were raised in Missouri and in Illinois. So in 1974, you went to Senegal. What brought you there in the first place? I went to Senegal because I was uh, at the University of Illinois. Mm Mm-hmm. I was in the French department, and I had started working on um, what we called expanded French studies, which meant we looked at African literature in Francophone countries. And I became very interested in uh, Africa because I I saw the people I was meeting, the professors I had were very different. They had a very different approach. They were very welcoming and open. And I thought, wow, this sounds like a totally different culture than the one I'm experiencing here in Illinois. (laughs) And I thought I would love to go to Africa one day. And guess what? I was doing my master's. I was teaching um, at the University of Illinois and, and uh, as I got my master's, and they s- decided that first year ever to have an exchange program with Senegal. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew I was very interested in, in African literature, and they said, Molly will, I'm sure, be the one who applies, which I did, of course, 
And that was 1974. Mm. I went over for six months, and I have now been there 45 years. Wow. Never well, left. tell us a little bit more about Senegal and what did keep you there. Oh, I love Senegal from the moment I stepped off the plane. <laughs> I can't explain it. It was like going uh, into a whole different land where I remember so well uh, seeing as I was going into the city, the the wind was blowing and the boo-boos were flowing. Um, the people were greeting each other and clasping their hands and patting backs and smiling and laughing and I the color and the beauty of the the people as they walked along the children seeing them dancing in the street and I said wow people are alive they're yeah. living you know I just left New York and there I didn't see anybody on the, <laughs> not not in New York City but mm. Uh, where I came from, there were not many people on the street. Yeah, and yeah. so I thought, wow, this is a different place. It's going to be exciting. And I thought, hmm, I don't know if I will be able to leave this place. It might like, be for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just felt at home. Yeah, I yeah. felt good. I felt happy. Mm-hmm. And you learned the language, right? I did. When I first went over, I thought French would be enough. Yeah. Because I did speak French. I had lived in France. And I, I thought I understood culture. Uh, from having been in a different uh, culture in France. But when I went to Senegal, I realized I got a bit frustrated a lot because, first of all, uh, I didn't understand what was going on, Mm -hmm. and I didn't understand why people were doing what they were doing. And I realized that so many people did not speak French, even though it had been colonized by France. And people said that people spoke French, but really only 10% of the people at that time were speaking French. And most were speaking the national language, which is Wolof, even though there are other na- national languages. Mm-hmm. There's Pular, Mandenka, Serer, Jola, Soninke, major languages. But uh, since so many people were speaking Wolof, I finally realized I, I, I need to learn Wolof because as soon as I would come up with a few words, people would get so excited. And I, I realized that to, to truly understand what was going on, why people said what they said oh, or did yeah. what they said, that it was so critical to learn the language. And it was the best thing I ever did. Oh, I can imagine. Knowing what the proverbs mean, the expressions. I mean, just oh, a whole deeper level of understanding. The wisdom of the people and... Also, knowing what to do to show respect to people, what not to do, that shocks people. Yeah, which yeah. <laughs> would be okay in New York, but not not here. Well, you started Toastin about 17 years after you had arrived, 1991 right. or so. Um, what was the impetus to do that? Because I had uh, volunteered when I was at the University of Dakar. At that time, it was called University of Dakar. Afterwards, they took the name of my professor, University Cher Job. But at the time, I was at the University of Dakar, and I volunteered, as I often did when I was at the University of Illinois. Um, I decided to volunteer with children, and I was very upset to see that the children did not have any books that really were about their own culture um, they were books imported from France about riding the metro or how you can build snowmen and mm-hmm. really didn't apply to Senegal. <laughs> right. So I started a children's center. I had uh, – after I'd been in Senegal two years, I got in the Peace Corps. I started a children's center where I was working for six years, really uh, trying to promote African books for African children. And we had African writers and illustrators who came and I had gotten books from all over the world – 
with African stories illustrated and giving good examples of what they could do. And uh, as we did that, we also did a radio program, went all over Senegal and recorded the stories and songs and activities of children. And by doing that, I got a real insight into the life of the villagers. Um, And after I had been in the center for six years, we decided to take that center out to a village. And actually, we were were only going to go for four months to the village. Ended up staying there three years Mm -hmm. because the people that were in this village, no one had ever been to school. And they wanted so desperately to learn to read and write and to also get new information and skills they needed because um, I was in a wonderful village. It's called Sam Njai, which was near the city of Chess. And there had been other projects around Sam Njai. And quite frankly, many and most had failed. Uh, there were health centers that were now inha- inhabited by chickens and goats and donkeys, and the beds were gone, and the wells uh, had not been constructed properly because some of the sacks of cement had been stolen, and they felt that they needed preparation before these projects came in with the millet machines that were broken down now, mm-hmm. and the wells, and, the, and, and management skills. And it wasn't in their village, but it was in a nearby village. And they said, you know, if you could just teach us some of this, you know, to read and write, to be able to manage our projects, to be able to do budgets and to follow through and and, and know about math. We know how to do math um, mentally, but we need to write things down. Yeah. So we started teaching in their language, in Wolof. And guess what? When you teach people in their own language, they learn very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, the formal school was all in French, and the children were having, and to this day, have a great deal of difficulty going into school after have not having seen children's books in their own language, mm-hmm. not knowing what books are, we not knowing what reading is, and you know, going teach, learning in another language is very difficult. So we started, and wow, they took off. And they started writing proposals. Wow. And they started, uh, you know, I insisted. I went to the embassy. They had small projects. And I said, this, this proposal is in Wolof. And they said, well, we can't read Wolof. I said, well, you better. Better learn. <laughs> because this comes from the people. Yeah, yeah. And their voice. It is them. They are the ones who wrote this. So you, you need to write it. And I said, if you want, I can sit and translate it for you. But I would rather you... <laughs> Find a way. Yeah. And they did. And they funded this. And what we realized is that so much of the the projects that I was seeing that had failed because people had come in from the outside just assuming Mm -hmm. that this is what people want. So we just give them wells. We give them a health center. We give them a millet machine. Then you know they'll they'll be okay. That's right. We can but, leave and they'll be fine. They'll, we That's can right. Leave and they gonna, come in. We'll fix it for them. <laughs> <laughs> they come in and they 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 do they may manage it for the people for a year or two and then they leave and you know people are like hey you know we didn't we didn't get the skills and, and yeah to do it ourselves to do it ourselves. So so um, after having lived through that experience with the villagers themselves, we put together a program. And this is a basic education program um, and how to come together, how to first start with, and this is what was so different, rather than me going in and saying, 
oh, you have so many problems. You need this and you need that and whatever, which is, I'm sorry to say, what a lot of development agents and workers uh, There's do. no doubt about it. And particularly 30 years ago, I think that's what all of them did. Particularly. And let me just say, you know, good intentions. Oh, yeah. Many good, good intentions. Um, some weren't perhaps not more interested in what, uh, you know, what will <laughs> benefit our countries in terms of getting mm-hmm. people uh, up to scale with, uh, you know, wanting to be consumers, et cetera. Yeah. But other people, very good intentions, yeah. wanting to help. Yeah. But not realizing that when, that it's so important to ask people what they want, what is important to them, and, and what are their needs, and what are their priorities. And not go in saying, you know, I'm here to tell you this is what you need to do, and these are your problems. Uh, we immediately started and start to this day with what is your vision? Where do you want to be in five years? And most importantly, what are the values that are important to you? What do you want to maintain within your uh, your development process yeah. that are so key to your um, thriving? Thriving and under very difficult well, conditions. Well, it's that, that realization you bring that these people are the experts on their own lives. Oh. And that's really the heart of your com- uh, community empowerment program. Talk a little bit about the core tenets of that program. Actually, the, the visioning process is the first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, of course, am not the one who goes into the villages. We have uh, community facilitators, we call them. They facilitate the dialogue among the community. And we open two classes, one for adults and one for youth. We made a big mistake in the beginning. We found that if we just did the adults, the youth were not exactly on board with a lot of <laughs> things that were going on. And when we did just for the youth, well, the adults were saying, wait a minute, what's going what's on What's going on there? <laughs> so we always do both. Mm-hmm. And the, they are classes uh, that are held, but in a different way than formal school. They follow the schedule of the villagers because they are very active in the fields and in other activities to make enough money to survive. Uh, these are villages that are remote and resource poor most often. Those are the villages where we're working mm-hmm. uh, in West Africa. And we start with what do you want? What, are your, what is your vision? Uh, what are the positive aspects of your community? What are the things you would like to maintain as you do go through this pr- development process? And then we look at how would you like to organize mm-hmm. to achieve these goals that you're setting? And uh, what are the important things to maintain, like unity, family, um, generosity, those things that are so Back important in Africa, sure, the values, yeah. you mm-hmm. know. And how can we maintain those as we go along and, and, and look at where you want to go and how you're going to organize to achieve that. And then we get into things like leadership and um, problem solving. How can we do collective problem solving? And probably one of the most important uh, aspects of our program is teaching uh, human rights. We, we worked for eight years without introducing this module on human rights into the program. And when we did finally introduce it, because we were doing a module specifically on health for women that we had introduced, uh, we realized that you can't do information on health without doing something around people understanding that they do have the right to health, Mm -hmm. but they have responsibilities. If they have those rights, they also have responsibilities. And we developed a very simple module 
um, but that lasts for about three months. <laughs> and so it's very, very important on what we call the principles for human dignity. That's what we call them. They're not any uh, articles from human rights instruments with lots of legal jargon that people don't understand. They're very simple. Yeah. Everyone has the right to be free from all forms of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And everyone has a responsibility also not to discriminate. And everyone has the right to be free from all forms of violence. But also we have a responsibility mm -hmm. not to be violent. And each one of these principles, there, there are 19 major principles that we, that we, we pulled out of uh, many human rights instruments, seven major human rights instruments. And we look at those. And each one of these principles is a session where people really discuss and see, do they feel that this is good? Yeah. Uh, does it go along? Is it aligned with their religion? Mm -hmm. And we use verses from the Quran because, of course, we're in a country that is 94 percent Muslim. And in all of the countries where we work in West Africa, they're Muslim countries. And that is very important. And then once people decide and come to consensus around that being very important, then they look at, are we violating this in any way? And what can we do? What actions can we take to stop this? Mm -hmm. um, so that is a very important component. And then we go on to, in the next modules, to look at health and hygiene, and all referring back to the human rights principles, of course. And then we ha that is the first year. And the second year is doing literacy learning and um, project management skills. We teach people how to use SMS texting in order to uh, practice their literacy skills. That was a big innovation, I one bet. that was very uh, welcome in the communities because everybody now has a phone. Mm -hmm. has a everybody. Yeah. <laughs> People don't realize that everybody does. Well, let's go back to that first year okay. with the health and hygiene module. And perhaps the achievement that Tosin is best known for is helping communities abandon the practice of female genital cutting. And, you know, I, probably a lot of people think you came in there with that idea to do that. But to what you just said, it really came from these women themselves in these community, uh, uh, you know, uh, get-togethers. Right. I, I always tell people I was more surprised than anyone <laughs> when the women actually decided. I mean, I, I could not quite believe it. And now you have to realize, too, that they had done the human right to health, mm -hmm. their responsibilities uh, around health, the right to be for, free of all forms of violence. And what is violence? They looked at what are the different forms of violence, looking at it as if, if violence is anything that is really not necessary that can harm people, mm -hmm. that can create uh, uh, problems or harm for people either in right away or in the future. And when they got to the health module and they st studied uh, female genital cutting, and we, we do say cutting, we don't say mutilation, and that is because the villagers themselves asked us not to say m mutilation, which is a word that means cutting with the intention of harming. Yeah. Because they were cutting the daughters because uh, they, they, they had no choice, really. It's what you did. It was the tradition. It was that's, – that's important. It brings respect to the woman. Uh, mm -hmm. They couldn't even imagine not being able to do that or not doing that. Yeah. And uh, women were really um, marginalized, ostracized. If they didn't, right. If they didn't. So mm -hmm. how could you they even imagine? They did because they loved their daughters. This was the reason they did exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. I say they, they did it because they loved their daughters and they ended because they loved their daughters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then – 
uh, again, it was not the initial goal of Tostan, and we were even in villages that weren't practicing FGC when we started. Mm-hmm. But what happened was the, the women in communities that had undergone this practice came to us. And they said, you've got to put this in the module that you're doing on women's health because we don't even know what happened to us when we were children. And we want to know uh, what harm that brings. We've heard that it people come around and tell us, you have to stop this. Yeah. But there's no way we can stop. We have to understand. Yeah. What's so, the why behind this is really the question. Yeah, why do, why we, do, we do this? have to undergo this? And we know it's a tradition. We know it brings respect. But do we really have to do this and and does it hurt us and what are the consequences of it in terms of our health so we did that we without judgment put that into the module i was very hesitant because it was very controversial mm-hmm. uh, at that time to put that into the module but at the insistence of the women of toston they said look you've got to do this, this is the women who want to know this you've got to we've got to do this so What happened was when that uh, we did put that into the module with, again, important was the human rights. They learned they had the human rights to speak out and voice their opinions. You had to give them the foundation of knowledge. Right. And and it's sort of a – it was the awakening of a new consciousness, of a a new agency, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. that, okay – We've learned this, and people are the men also were in agreement that this is right, that we need the voice of women in this development process. And so we now have the right to say we can end this practice if we realize it is not helping us to achieve our goals for the future. Because their goals for the future were health, well being, yeah. prosperity, uh, and still living in peace. Peace was the key word peace, mm-hmm. family. Um, generosity, understanding, and and um, it doesn't align anymore with what we want for the future. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, this is steeped in religion, or so they think, until they find out it that, isn't. Right. And, and then they had not questioned that before. They just assumed yeah. that uh, it was a religious practice. And so working with the religious leaders has been huge for Tosin. We've done that from the beginning. Very but smart. When we actually started doing uh, special trainings for religious leaders, which we actually do a lot of now, we do 10-day trainings for religious leaders uh, from all over, uh, And but it, particularly in the communities where we work, what we realized, and they said for the first time, no, this is nowhere in the Quran. Mm. And actually, the, the, the actual study of some of the human rights principles with uh, the verses from the Quran uh, have led people to understand that really uh, there are so many things they misunderstood and misinterpreted. And it's been great to have the, the voice of the, the religious leaders, both women and men, mm-hmm. involved in the process of, of change. What has happened is uh, they have gone out, literally gone out in from village to village uh, to work with people to explain that this is not a religious practice and anything that harms can even kill uh, our our daughters That's great. is not to be promoted. Yeah. It's rather it's to be stopped. That's part of organized diffusion, right? Well, we <laughs> call it organized diffusion. Um, and this was from an imam, actually, mm-hmm. a village chief imam. His name is Dimba Jaura. He came to me and he said, okay, first he was mad at me because he said, you should not be working on female genital cutting. <laughs> And I said, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, I said, Dimba, go speak to a doctor. 
go speak to your your key religious leader, the the Khalifa, the high level religious leader, and also go talk to the women because he's so smart. Demba is one of my mentors. And I said, you are so smart. You will know how to speak to the women so they will tell you the truth. Usually the women would not speak about this. They were afraid to. There yeah. were a lot of taboos around oh, yeah. even talking about it. And when he came back, he said, oh, Molly, if I knew what I now know, I would have stood up. He always says, I would have put on my shoes and started walking years ago. <laughs> and Dimba actually put on his shoes. Dimba went to 347 villages mm-hmm. because, Dimba said, you're working with a tradition that can only be stopped, not by one person, not by one family, not by one community. It has to be the extended family, the, 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 the social network, the people that matter. They are the ones that have to be involved in this decision. And this is how Tostan learned about social norms. Yeah. We learned that social norms, is this is Demba's uh, wise teaching to, to our staff, is that, uh, and he's never been to school, formal school, but he certainly, I always say he has a doctorate in wisdom and social transformation. Demba says that, you know, social norms are those practices which are expectations by others in your community. And if you don't practice them, number two, you're going to get sanctioned. Oh, yeah. Ostracized. And number three, there's, they have value, social value. And so you cannot approach them and use the same methodologies you can with other practices that everybody says, oh, yeah, those are really bad. You know, throwing mm-hmm. trash in the street. No, that's not so good. So you can send out messages around that. But something that has social value, oh, my gosh, you can't, you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Because when people uh, all agree, oh, you have to do that. You know, hey, think of some of the social norms we have in America. You know, uh, if everybody expects you to come to a Christmas party and bring gifts and you say, come and you say, hey. I don't like this practice. I didn't bring a gift. <laughs> but what do you got for me? <laughs> <laughs> the people will go, ah, yeah, yeah. Hey, ooh, ooh. Not next year, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it really made sense to everybody. And so Demba says, let me show you. And he put, as he said, he put on his shoes. And he walked to, to many communities that were part of his social network. Mm-hmm. He said he went first to the Derutu Sumabai. That is the blood of my father. So all the relatives on the father's side, and then to the Deretu Sumayai, the blood of his mother's, of his mother, and the, so that the the, the close uh, the, uh, the close relatives, those are the people that actually were intermarrying. This yeah. is a question of inter, inter, intermarrying in within the group, mm-hmm. and and so of course you could not get married if you were not cut because yeah. you would not be respected. You mm-hmm. would be ostracized. One woman told me that when. Uh, she was not cut, and she walked into the room with all the women who were cut, and they stopped talking. They all got up and left. Mm. Uh, she said, I would do wash, and people would say, okay, we have to wash the clothes again because they're dirty. It was considered you were impure if you were not cut. That's amazing, yeah. So you can see. I can see, yeah. So Dimba says, here's what you do. You get all these people to come together. I go and work with them. I am, see, never, never Molly, of course. That's the last thing you would do. Mm-hmm. Anyone from the outside coming in telling people to stop what they're doing, 
Uh, you can imagine well, the reaction. The old way we used to do it, you know, yeah. Uh, right. To many um, international organizations, yeah. And Right. Not the way we used to do it. So many people are still well, they doing still do it. it as well. That's right. At least they, they are a little bit better than they used to be, but they still. it's a hard pra- practice to break. Well, and we've been doing training for – we've done, done training for other NGOs. We've had 565 participants over 26 seminars in the yeah. last five years. And – it's surprising to me that they say, well, we have to do that. We don't have time. Yeah. And I, and I said, well, why do you have to do it this way? Well, the donors want us to tell people to end FGC. So we go in and tell people they have to end FGC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and again, pretty much, yeah. uh, and, they, and they use words. We're mm-hmm. fighting. Mm-hmm. We're going to fight FGC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I say, but when, when you go in saying you're going to fight, I mean, when you tell someone you're going to fight, What's the reaction? I'm going to get defensive. Uh, exactly. And and who are you coming in here to judge me? Okay. I'm not, I don't appreciate that one little bit. That would be my reaction. And, and you know, that's what happens a lot. And people in Africa are very polite. So a yeah. lot of times they'll just say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as a result, what— And uh, then they, the person leaves and they say, oh, boy, he yeah. doesn't—he does—this person doesn't understand Doesn't this. get it at all. Right. Well, you know, as a result of this approach— um, over 7,000 communities have declared their intent to abandon harmful social norms across Africa, and that is quite a testimonial to Tostin. Um, talk a little bit about funding, because you just mentioned that before. How is the funding for Tostin? Where do you get it? And a little bit about your pooled funding growth approach. Right. Well, we've had funding from many sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, UNICEF and UNFPA have been major donors in the past and have been very pr- supportive and participative in the process of uh, trying to to share also the, the, the learnings that we have had during this process of ending FGC and child marriage. Um, and uh, also many uh, family foundations have been major, major um, supporters Individuals mm-hmm. uh, have also stepped in, but what we realized is that um, we have a program. It's it's holistic, it's inclusive. Uh, it is uh, not just linear. We don't go in for to do family planning or just in to do FGC. We don't just go in for child marriage. We don't go in just for literacy. And a lot of donors come and say, "Well, that's what we want you to do." Mm. So we say, "Look." You get that result from a, a, a program that includes all of these things. All, and they say, no, no, no. We, we just want that one thing. We say, okay, but to get that one thing, you absolutely – it's very important to address the, 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 the whole slew of things that are The interconnections. Uh, yes, they're all inter- – these subjects are all interconnected. Mm-hmm. Education is, edu- is very connected to health, is very connected to the environment, is in- – very in, uh, connected to economic growth. Yeah, yeah. And the health. So, so what we did is we decided to to say to people, we want to do our program because we know it works. We know it has results, and you can invest in that program, and you can get the results you want with other people who may be interested in other subjects. And so we call it a pooled funding model, and it worked so well. We didn't – people invest for three years because they know this program takes time. Takes time. Some people say, three years, that's so long. Yeah. I look at them and I say, how many years do, were you in school? <laughs> they say 22, yeah, 25. I'm still say, going, well, right? <laughs> we're doing women who've never been to school, girls yeah. who've never been to school, and you think that in two months, one year? No. 
it takes time. It takes allowing people the time to think. And we do classes where people go to school Monday and Tuesday they share with someone else mm-hmm. so that they are become, they learn and then they become teachers. Mm-hmm. And they do this over a three-year period. And by that time, they are now the ones who are reaching out, like Dimba Jaura did, sharing with others. This is the organized diffusion uh, strategy yeah. that you mentioned. And they are the ones who are bringing about the change, what we call critical mass. Mm-hmm. We know with these declarations, there actually are 8,426 declarations now. And one coming up in December that you're welcome <laughs> to come. They're very exciting. Oh, They're yeah. positive. I bet. Uh, where people come together and say, we have chosen health and yes. we, have chose, we have chosen a future where women and girls can thrive in health and, um, and, and not have to worry about these, 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 these problems that they had before. That is fantastic. And, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What do you think the greatest contribution that Tostin has made? Oh, I definitely would say for me, if uh, it has been bringing human rights to people – uh, in a way that they truly understand that it speaks to them, uh, that they could have the time to think about it, to assimilate what this means, and then to actually come together and say, how, how can we apply this? How can we use this to, um, to achieve the vision that we have for a better future? Mm-hmm. And they, they have, we have posters, colorful posters they use. And now I'm receiving these, but we do training. And I get... I get pictures of, uh, of of the mosque in Nigeria that's teaching human rights to the, 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 the youth groups and to to the women's groups of the of the mosque in Ghana. We work actually with the Carter Center mm. uh, over the years with them on 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 training religious leaders um, and working with them, sharing with them. And, and they love these using these human rights. And I just I tell you, it was like seeing a little revolution. Yeah. I had done the program for eight years without human rights, and I was able to see how when we introduced this into the program, what a difference it made to people. And it was like awakening this consciousness of, wow, we have the power to do something, to change something, and the power with others who have learned the same thing. And together, you know, they have... You changed their frame. You know, it really just put it there and they looked yeah. at things from a completely different lens. And here's the exciting thing. I've done that in the United States with the same reaction when people... Yeah. Because sometimes we we have a tendency in the States, I think, to think of human rights as political and civil uh, rights. And we forget all the other human rights and it, it, it is really it is empower it was empowering for me mm-hmm. as i went through this process and as you said it's human dignity you know what i mean that's really at, at the heart of it let me close with this molly um i had jim collins on the show the author of good to great recently i know you're a fan of his as was your husband and his research strongly indicates that one of the hallmarks of a great leader is humility and having followed your work over the years i've always noticed how you've deflected all the credit away from yourself and to the villagers themselves. Leave us with your thoughts on leadership and the kind of leadership that you have practiced that has led to this kind of uh, sustainable change in Senegal and other countries across West Africa. Well, uh, I think leadership is critical. Uh, and I, I, I do think that the results we've had have not... It has been my determination, perhaps, my perseverance... 
patients, but it's most of all, I felt too, um, I think leadership, you have to feel that you, you really love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're passionate about it. And when you're, when you're in a situation where you see results that you're, again, you're surprised by and, and excited by, and you really, um, you want to do more, you want to, to do as much as you can, but you want to constantly say, you have to keep listening to people. You have to, 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 to work with them, and they have to be the ones that, that are solving their own problems. You can't go in and do that for them. And even within your team, within the, the team that is Toast On, that is made up of hundreds of people who've never been to school, most, for the most part, but who are development agents, who are really in the communities working for change and are so excited about that. And you want to do everything you can to, to give them the credit because they are the ones who are out there in these communities, very difficult conditions. And it just seems so normal to me. But I think the most important thing is, is actually listening to people, understanding what their values and vision are, um, again, knowing their language and the language which conveys a whole different worldview than than perhaps those of the development agents who come in, and encouraging um, people. Now I'm going through transition. Others to take over. I've I was 27 years. It's mm-hmm. a long time, maybe too <laughs> long. But knowing that um, things will be done differently, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Encouraging creativity and creating um, uh, an atmosphere where people are working but also thinking about their well-being also. I think that is probably something I um, – one of the things that I was given in my, my education from my mother who was a teacher. Mm-hmm. I was lucky to be uh, influenced by uh, a teacher who was, who was passionate about what she did. So <laughs> it works, and she worked. And congrats to mom. Well, M- Molly Melching, the founder of Tosin, I want to thank you so much for being here. Where can people learn more about your work, and what can they do to help support it? Oh, would love for them to go to toaston dot org. Mm-hmm. Look at our website, see all the wonderful things we're doing. The yesterday there was an announcement about a woman who's now another one of the thousands of women who was elected to become a municipal councilor in her area and now is got a human rights platform uh, ready to, to, to advocate for the rights of their community. And also the book, However Long the Night. Written by Amy Malloy. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells the story of those people who I was so blessed to be able to work with uh, over the years. Uh, and my own story uh, along with it. And um, I would say start with the website. Yeah. Find that donate button. The name of the book, again, is However Long the Night, Molly Melching's Journey to Help Millions of African Women and Girls Triumph. Thanks, Molly. It was a treat to have you here. Thank you, Denver. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.